out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Yes, thank you. Hello and welcome to the C86 show. This is David Eastall. I'm with you for the next hour and a bit. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it is going to be the turn of the Stingrays because I spoke to Alec Palau quite recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff that happens when you're in a band, an indie band or even a garage rock psychobilly band. Anyway, this is the interview and um, after a few minutes of casual chat we got down to the exciting um, subject that was indie pop and the um, yes and we did mention Alan McGee and from that moment on the interview just went wild. Anyway, this was Alex's Alex, uh, response. I saw Alan um, probably year before last. It was uh, uh, um, Dan Treacy uh, from uh, Television Personalities. It was like a benefit for him at the 100 Club. And, uh, um, you know, I still uh, see uh, Joe Foster, who had done a lot of stuff with over the years. Um, uh, and we went, we went down to that, and uh, he was there, and Dick Green and a whole bunch of other people from the old days, uh, Frank from the June Brides and... Um, it was a little weird. I mean, a lot of people were looking at me like, I know you, but I don't know. <laughs> yes. I've seen some of these people since I moved to America. So, uh, um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, Alan was, uh, you know, I, I, I can remember, you know, going to uh, the, the really, the first, like, I guess, living room or whatever he called it, you know, um, venue he had, which is on Tottenham Court Road. And I remember him. I say, oh, they check out started the label. Check this out, this band they, from Scotland. They just sound, they sound exactly like the Velvets, and they, you know, it was the Mary Chain. Um, and actually, I went to, uh, I was one of like the ten people, at, you know, the famous, uh, this famous uh, show um, that was in um, the pub in the uh, in the Angel. I think I can't remember the Three Johns. I think was the name of the pub. Okay. And um, it was like, uh, you know, there's, you know, like I say, it's about. Told no more than like ten, fifteen people in this room, and the the main band was this group called the Trees, who are, I don't think they ever recorded or ever did anything, but I quite liked them. They were sort of they had a kind of slightly West Coast '60s sort of feel to them. Um, but uh, I remember the Mary Chain opened, and they were just like doing. It was like in their early days where they would just, it would just be a total caterwaul of noise, <laughs> and they were like kicking, <laughs> kicking this. You know, they were borrowing the gear of this band, the Trees, and they started kicking the amp and. Um, and uh, you know the guy from the band was like trying to pull them off. And, you know, it was pretty, it was it was pretty funny. Uh, but that was the gig that uh, this guy um, called Neil Taylor, uh, who used to write for the NME, yes. uh, who I knew because I used to flog records on Camden Market, and he had a stall uh, stall on the other side of the market. Uh, so I'd see him, and um, you know I, he was there, and I remember him like scribbling stuff in a notebook and then of course like the next week enemy is like here's the future of rock and roll or whatever and and they kind of started the whole thing you know but yes uh, well it's interesting uh, i was going to say that's interesting because neil's just brought out his book the the one that's c86 and all that music and music in difficult times i think it's uh-huh. also ref- have you seen a copy of it no i haven't uh uh i mean i'd be curious to see it i mean he was. It was. A, it was funny that whole the media guys in those days were, because uh, I remember, you know, Stingrays. We put out a record, and the he came over. He remembered coming over to the, to the stall like on a Saturday morning. Said, 
oh, sorry, mate, but I've slagged your record. <laughs> and then, then uh, uh, the, the review came out, and somebody got annoyed about it. I think it was somebody of you know an ace. It was a, yeah, it was a record on ace or whatever. But because the the review was not so much a slag of us as a band, it's more like saying this dopey label or whatever, big beat records or ace records. And so, so uh, you know, somebody wrote an angry or a, a pissed off note, and then. So he re-reviewed the record and gave it a glowing review. <laughs> Excellent, like, good old Neil. You know, it was, it was a fun, funny period that, but yeah, you know, I mean he was a good old guy. So, but you know, he'd, obviously he'd get all these records and he'd be flogging them on Saturday morning at the stall. So I actually, I ended up with you know, now in hindsight, you know, I mean for anybody who collects like you know mid-eighties British indie stuff, you know some. Some, um, reasonably rare records, I suppose. You know, yes, um, I didn't realize that everyone did that occasionally. You know, <laughs> flogged your yeah, review. One thing I got a uh, one thing I got from him, which I still have, is the first McCarthy single, which was on this, their own label, and it was with before. Uh, it wasn't. I don't know if Tim Gain was in the group, but it was. It wasn't the the band. You know, the full lineup of that band. Yes. And uh, and the letter is just basically said is the letter inside that Neil, please give us a good review. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a, you know, it's kind of funny, but excellent. That, but they they were actually a, they were a good uh, one of the bands I liked quite a lot at that time. McCarthy. I mean, you know, the only thing that's kind of dated them is like you know the sort of polemical lyrics, but uh, musically they were really good. Yes, I know. They're very, it's interesting. So look, because you, so, so roughly then, because I've, you know, obviously been kind of obsessed about this show. I mean, what was your own sort of teen musical years before you actually were in a band? What, what kind of shaped your, you know, kind of period? Because for me, you know, I'm in my mid-50s now, so it was kind of like, you know, the, all the cliched stuff of the glam, you know, the early glam world of... So well, I was definitely, I loved that. I mean, the you know, uh, loved, uh, you know, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the ones, the ones I loved that I'm happy to, to admit to, you know, obviously the, you know, Bowie and, and T-Rex and Roxy and, um, Blade and whatever, you know, I, you know, of course I like Gary Glitter too, because I was, you know, like 10 years old, 11 years old, you know. Oh, okay. So you, you were the, you're but, roughly but, uh, the same. Are you, Are you... And, you know, some of the, the things that, you know, the first record I ever bought was Hey Rock and Roll by Shawadi Wadi, which is actually, a, you know, actually when you listen to it now, it's a it's a decent bubblegum record. Yes. You know, it's it's not like the kind of you know the the horrible cliched stuff that they became famous for. Yes, um, but I do because I, Mud did a fantastic song called The Secrets That You Keep that I still think sounds good today, and that was on a soundtrack to a strange musical featuring David Tennant and David Morrissey called Blackpool. And uh, they, they, they would break into song and they used that song and it actually works really well. And you go back to it and you think, actually, they, they did some quite good stuff other than... Yeah, the... Some of that stuff when you listen to now is like, um, you know, it, it's... Uh, and, then, you know, there was... Uh, but there, I, I've always gravitated towards good songs, you know, so even though I, re I wasn't into, like, you know, Bebop Deluxe or whatever, I loved that Ships in the Night song, you know. Uh, I, I, uh, you know, everybody had, everybody had a, there was a good song everywhere, uh, you know, but I wasn't necessarily, I think, you know, straight away, because I was, you know, born in the end of 1962, you know, I was subliminally programmed with Beatles and Stones and all that stuff anyway, you know, but by the time I finally realized who it was, I already knew the music inside out. And um, it didn't take me long to really get into that stuff and to, and to uh, you know, uh, vintage rock and roll. In fact, my interest in 50s and 60s rock and roll coincided almost, you know, 
the same simultaneously with punk rock and how exciting that was because that really was you know I, I, even though i was way too young and i was in a situation where i couldn't like go to gigs or read and buy the records that much it was still a tremendous time to be like 14 or 15 and you know hearing this you know this great music um that was out there you know and it was really you know just the sort of the whole frisson of excitement that came with it you know? yeah um, but did I you was, I still I was going to say because yeah. I, I had a because I'm a little bit younger, but not by much. But I had an older brother who was seven years old, and he he was into prog in a big way because that was kind of that moment, I suppose, that he was just there at, at the right time, at the right in the right place, at the right time, and going to university at that stage where you got the grant. And and so you know he had all those prog albums that I sort of you know yes Genesis, Barclay, James Harvest, Wishbone Ash, and even the solo work of Rick Wigman. Did you did that kind of filter into you, or did you kind of completely yeah, miss? Yeah, well, it? no, that, I, I can give you very clear. I went to. Uh, I was fortunate enough. Uh, this is back in the days for Margaret Thatcher and Noble, the whole educational system and everything else. Uh, I was on a, a, a grant from the the county. Yeah, I I grew up in North London, Crouch End, uh, Muscle Hill. And in those days, mid seventies, you know, the council would like pay the tuition for certain, you know, kids if they felt it would better their educational, you know, op- opportunities. So I was very fortunate. You know, I went to a child shrink and got sent to a, um, a boarding school in uh, Letchworth, Hertfordshire, uh, uh, and it was a very interesting place. It was progressive, you know, co-educational. It was run by Quakers. You know, fantastic place actually to grow up. I was very, very fortunate to be there. And it was an interesting mixture of like, you know, you know, sort of kids like me that came from, you know, lower middle class backgrounds that were on there on a grant. And then, you know, the sons and daughters of diplomats and, and film directors and rock stars and stuff. But there was a whole bunch of older kids. And they, you know, when I really started getting into, uh, you know, especially like sort of, you know, uh, rock and roll and pop stuff, you know, these older kids that love Genesis and Yes and, and, and Led Zeppelin and all stuff, of course, they were laughing at me. And, and it... And I realized, you know, not only did I not like that kind of music, I really hated the sort of supercilious arrogance that kind of came along with the people that liked that kind of music. You know? <laughs> uh, and so it really put me off that kind of stuff. I mean, now, all these years later, I'll admit to having and enjoying, you know, the first, you know, the first Genesis album, the first few Yes albums, um, you know, and uh, other things of that ilk. But I like them because they're sort of coming out of the psychedelic period and they have, you know, good songs. But when they... When they get into the sort of extended extrapolations and the, the ivory tower, you know, uh, stuff, then I'm, you know, I'm, yeah, and I've always hated the pixies and gnomes aspect of British music. You know, that's just to me is a, uh, I find it very difficult to uh, take that stuff seriously. Yes, but you must have been just a bit, yeah, a bit older than I was. So punk wasn't something because that slightly passed me by. I have to say because I was probably about twelve or thirteen, and coming from a, a village in the middle of nowhere, you don't really get much of a chance. So it was still kind of much more to do with you know top of the pots and the top forty. Yeah, on, on well, well, it was for me too. Believe me, <clears throat> I was just fortunate. I, um, you know, in that the, the summer of nineteen seventy seven. Uh, I was actually, you know, this the school, uh, you know, they didn't have dormitories. You just, like, shared a room with one guy or something like that. And the fellow that I was sharing a room with that summer was the only guy in the in who had a decent sound, you know, record player. So everyone would bring their al- albums over, and there was, a, you know, some guys are way more hip, hip to the, the whole punk thing. So they'd bring the roof, you know, the, you know, the Clash album, the day it was released, and whatever, and blah blah, and bring all over. And I was hearing this stuff over and over again, and it really sank in. And the the groups that really spoke to me at that time, 
Well, the you know, it was a clash and the, the the jam and the stranglers. You know, their early records all there. And I realized later now is really you know they had that sort of zeitgeist of you know the '60s songwriting and '60s rock and roll approach. You know, um, later on I really got into Wire and Subway Sex and the slightly more obscure people. And of course, you know, the, the Buzzcocks are at the center of it all and the adverts. And um, you know, I really loved all of that stuff. I still do, you know, to death. And it's. Uh, um, I wasn't, funnily enough, I was never a big Sex Pistols fan at the time, but uh, just as I was thinking, I was telling my wife about this the other day because I'd just uh, been reading a kind of a crappy, that was not crappy, but it's a, it was a pulp sort of type paperback that was put out about the Pistols by uh, this couple, Fred and Judy Vermeerall. It's, cool. it's actually a well-known book about the Pistols, the first thing. But it's based on the, um, based on the diaries of the... Uh, the uh, secretary who worked for Malcolm McLaren uh, during the whole Pistols, you know, the early days. And uh, her name was Sophie. And I knew her because she was, later on in the 80s, she was the uh, partner or wife of uh, this fellow, Stan Brennan, who had a record shop called Rocks Off in Hanway Street in West End and had a little label called Media Burn. And it would put out a bunch of records. Um, and he, um, he uh, would promote gigs at this place called... Uh, uh, the Pinder of Wakefield, which is, I think is called the Water Rats now, it's in uh, King's Cross. Anyway, uh, yeah, and we, the Stingrays, we would play there quite a lot. And uh, I remember seeing Sophie there, and I, I, it was just after I'd read this book, and I was thinking, oh, yeah, blah, blah, you know, Sex Pistols, uh, I hope we're like that, you know. And she kind of smiled and didn't really, you know, <laughs> say anything. But then one gig, a few, you know, some months later, she came up to me directly after the gig and said, that was like the Sex Pistols, you know. Uh, and, you know, she would know, you know, because she'd been around them. Um, I mean, the Stan Brennan, uh, he also was the guy that uh, put out and produced the first Pogues record um, uh, because Shane McGowan used to work at Rocksaw. Right. And, uh, and um, Shane, uh, you know, saw the Stingrays quite a lot in the early days, and he, he told me, he said, I really like you guys because you remind me of the fucking Sex Pistols. And getting that from, getting an accolade of that nature from a guy like that who would know, 100% know, was was really meaningful, still is when I think about it now. Um, and I was actually, by depth, uh, uh, sat in with the Pogues for a couple of gigs uh, around 1983 um, when the, the drummer um, hurt his hand or something. So, oh, right. Because that was because I because I saw them supporting Elvis Costello and it must have been that was on their first album when they were the support band and and you know support bands normally uh, get yeah that, that's right he yeah right around the time he was still standing was, up basically at the drum kit well drum. yeah yeah the, the the fellow that played drums he played standing up so and that's the way I used to play drums in scenery so you know Shane said oh well you know Alec can do it you know um, I mean we did a, a I think a show that place Pinder Wakefield played at a Camden Irish Centre. That was kind of interesting, something like that. And uh, and then also a big gig at the Lyceum uh, opening for this group called King Kurt. It was like one of those big kind of novelty type groups. Um, you know, they throw flour all over the stage and everything. Um, but uh, and then it's funny because <laughs> Shane saying, uh, yeah, let's do uh, the Crusher. You know, which is this great old '60s garage rock and roll thing that the Stingrays we used to do. And like you know, the other guys in the pose are like, like, whoa, what are you talking about? <laughs> I had no clue. <laughs> but um, uh, but he, uh, he really got off on that. And of course, you know, later on, um, uh, the bass player, what's her name, uh, Kate. Kate, uh, yes. She, you know, married Elvis Costello. I remember uh, I had a little stint for a few years where I would uh, do the um, 
the uh, cloakroom at the 100 Club, uh, Northern Soul All Nighters, uh, A.D. Uh, Crowsdale, who I still work with at Ace Records, he, he put these things on and he, he got me, you know, so you basically be there all night, you know, you know, taking the, the coats and stuff of all these speeding Northerners, you know, coming down to <laughs> this all-nighter thing. And, of course, Shane had done it before me, and the guy who'd done it before him was a guy, one of the guys from The Alarm, one of those groups. Right. Like, oh, I was going to do this, and I might be a pop star. <laughs> of course, that didn't happen. Uh, but I remember uh, bringing Oscar Stella down to one of those things. Um, yes, because I think you'll... Because did he also produce the first album, didn't he, Elvis? No, he produced the second album. Stan uh, Brennan uh, did the, the first one. The first one's called Red Roses to Me. The the second one, uh, Rum, Sodomine and Lash, I think that's that's Elvis Costello. Right. Uh, I, can't... I, always, I always thought he sort of straightened them out too much. They weren't as... Uh, um, you know, they had that same, in the very early days... Uh, in fact, now I think about it, their very first gig was was playing on the same bill as uh, Stingrays um, uh, at the 100 Club. Uh, they called themselves the Black Velvet Underground. <laughs> and they had this guy, all he would do is just stand in front of a microphone with a, like a, a tin tray like you'd have in the pubs, you know, for taking your drinks around. Is that uh, Spider? Bat, 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 yeah, uh, no, I don't think it was Spider. I thought it was somebody else, but it might have been Spider. Uh, you know, bashing his head on the yes. microphone. Um, and then they actually... Uh, now I think about it, I know Alan, Alan uh, McGee put us on, uh, he had a thing called the Orgasm Club, it was like at a place in Soho, and I remember they played with us, uh, Singrays, uh, that, that too. So yeah, they, were, they were around, I mean, they had, but what I was going to say was that they had this, in their early days, they had this wonderful anarchic thing, which is the sort of, you know, analogous to the kind of thing that we sort of had, you know, whether we wanted to or not, uh, and they lost that when Elvis Costello came in, he sort of smoothed them out, and I remember, like you know, thinking that the the first record he produced sounded like the, you know, the the theme tune to an Irish soap opera or something like that. Down <laughs> way, yes, uh, I can't remember, but my favourite song, and I can't remember which album it was, was Sally MacLean, MacLean, and I. Oh yeah, that's on the first album. And that was a classic. Uh, I, believe, I remember, I remember playing that with them. I mean, I remember bashing them out of the, but they were, you know, they were. Um, Shane, anyway, was a was a early sort of a supporter or enthusiast for for us, you know. Um, but you know, obviously, he had his own thing going, and that became you know a big deal yes. very quick. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway. yes. So uh, so so you were at boarding school, but then you you quickly sort of became part of the band in sort of eighty one, which oh, was uh, the um, the. Bow, the singer, the Stingrays, and Mark, the guitarist, the Stingrays. Actually, in fact, um, Keith, the original bass player, we were all at school together. In fact, Keith was a head boy at one time at the school. Uh, and uh, Bow had to... Bow, I mean, I've known Bow since I was like, gosh, uh, 12. Um, uh, the, uh, he, he left school, uh, but Mark and Keith were still there, and you know, we'd hang out and play music together. You know, we had sort of like a couple of sort of ad hoc type little groups at school um and but when um when we uh when we all left when we all left school uh Bow and mark got a a flat just down the road from where i lived uh, my my family home in uh, crouch end so i see a lot of them and that's when we sort of started putting together the idea of stingrays and it really was uh we just wanted to put all our enthusiasms together in one place yeah um yeah, and, uh, and were the Guana bats and you mentioned King Kurt? Were they already going, or were the? No, no, no. All those, those people, uh, those 
bands came along later. The only band that we were aware of, and we did like them a lot in their early days, was uh, a group called Meteors. Meteors, um, yeah. Uh, and, uh, I think we liked them probably more even than, let's say, the Cramps or any of the other people that were, that were you know, the, all these people were inspirational rather than models we wanted to follow because I think, you know, uh, you know certainly for myself anyway, you know, I I still had the punk rock mindset. You know, it's like you got to you got to have you got to have a message or something. You got to say something. You know, we weren't into you know we we weren't into like mindless stuff, but we loved the wild, crazy, like say anarchic side of things. That was, you know, we wanted we wanted to be as wild as what we would hear in some of these great old rockabilly records of garage, you know, garage. Uh, uh, better put my British accent on <laughs> uh, garage band stuff. You know, I mean, I I first heard you know the nuggets album in 1977 or whatever and that was like my bible for that has been my bible for the rest of my life you know but that is the greatest music of all time so so the very first things the stingrays ever rehearsed were like you know psychotic reaction and um you know uh, stuff of that nature i remember us trying to do the sonic song a witch but it, unfortunately we were trying to we thought let's read let's redo it in a kind of a rockabilly way but it didn't it didn't really work um and I remember trying to do uh, uh, Buzzcock songs too uh, at that time. Uh, so we were, uh, you know, it was people uh, like the the groups, the, the kind of club foot gang that lot. They sort of, uh, they, I mean, obviously they were probably operational, you know, some fine way I imagine. But we didn't really encounter them until quite a bit later, yes. probably about two years after we formed. Um, uh, because partly because you know we would just sort of ended up sharing the bills with a lot of these people. Uh, um, and uh, you know, and some of those bands were fun to watch. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I never really, I haven't listened to a lot of the, that music since that time. Um, uh, but, you know, the bands that we were way closer to in terms of a mindset and the aesthetic were, was the Medway guys, you know, the Milkshakes and uh, Prisoners. Um, we have much more in common with them, I think. Yes, um, because they, because the, the other bands that we mentioned, they seemed quite crazy. Crazy, crazy. They did seem quite, you know. Well, uh, yeah. Well, they were. I think it was. You know, uh, everybody had their own style and their own thing. You know, um, uh, I think we were just coming from a different place. You know, we we really. It, it did seem to me like, you know, why can't we put all these different kinds of things we like together, in in one place? You know, we wasn't. You know, we didn't. It's, it's not so much that we didn't have a. Maybe we didn't. Probably didn't have a style, but. I think you know we would we would genuinely like you know we get on stage and just go wild um, and it, but but it, what we you know we weren't particularly good musicians so we didn't you know it wasn't coming across probably in the same way all those guys are better players than us so you know they were much more refined in their craziness I guess <laughs> yes but I you guess. know the crowd you know the crowds you know uh, loved it I mean you know, some of those gigs could be a lot of fun you know it's just when it got a little more formalized as far as like you know. Uh, the, I mean, you have to remember, David. I'm sure you do. That back in the 80s, the 70s and 80s, and going beyond that, it was very, very tribal in England. You know, it's like you'd have, you know, you would, you could not, you know, if you were, you know, in the rocking scene, you know, you couldn't, you know, you you weren't going to go to a mod thing. Or, no, you know, if you were God, that's that's so home. true. That is uh, so true. <laughs> uh, uh, and we, because we sort of had our feet in all of those areas, um, you know, it, we were. We really weren't taken to heart and taken to the bosom of any of those scenes because we didn't we didn't fit into any of them. You know, it was uh, um, 
it was you know in some ways that was probably you know why we weren't, maybe one didn't become as popular as some of those groups but at the same time it was uh, because we just wanted to do what we wanted to do and we weren't i think i mean the, i remember people in the very early days of stingrays coming to see us play and say oh yeah i understand what you're trying to do and then and now I think about it, we really weren't trying to do anything. We were just like wanted to celebrate what we loved, our own enthusiasms for the kinds of music we liked. And, and it seemed to me, it was, why can't you put bits of this? I mean, like, I mean, I, I give example, like, I mean, I've always been a huge Scott Walker, Walker Brothers fan, and I love that. And I would be screwing around with a guitar in a sort of a ham-fisted way, trying to figure out one of the songs. And come up with a riff, and that would end up on a, you know, it mutated into a song that's on our very first EP. You know, um, you know, was we were, and it always used to be a, a joke for the guys at Ace or the other people at labels, like, wow, you, you, you're into the Walker Brothers and Gene Clark and all this other kind of stuff. You know, so, um, you know, you're not just into the voodoo, you know, bats and ghouls stuff. You yeah, know. screaming, screaming, um, Jay. Oh, who did? I put a spell on you, screaming Jay Hawkins. Well, we love now the old, the guy, the original originators. You know, Red screams Jay Hawkins. And we loved all those sorts of records, but you know, uh, I don't think we were trying to be a modern version of that. Um, you know, there's a different. You know, it's a, it's an interesting thing because I I talk to people uh, a lot about uh, in recent times. You know, they'll say, "Check this out," and they'll play me a some you know a, 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 you know garage revival thing from the 80s or 90s or even recently and you know and it's if there's a song there i'll be you know my ears will prick up but most of the time if you do you know you're sort of you know you you doing you can't be the same kind of inspired lunacy that you know someone like scream jay hawkins would have you know down the line you know you can be influenced and inspired and take it in your own direction you know and that's i guess if we were trying to do anything that's what we were trying to do but uh Yes. Um, well, I always remember the, the other person was, was um, and because you know, I was always obsessed with him, was David Bowie, and he always mentioned Vince Taylor and um, his kind of... Yeah, pu- legend, and then, yeah, the legendary Stars Cowboy, who, uh, uh, you know, we liked, and we, we loved that. I mean, that was genuinely... You see, I guess when you say crazy, and you're talking about King Kurt and those kinds of guys, it was sort of a, a planned, methodical crazy, whereas Legendary Stars Cowboy was genuinely, absolutely psychotic loony yes Uh, and so was Vince (laughs) and so you know that's kind of what we gravitated to and we actually played with him um and did a small little tour and I know Bal uh singer was really big big fan of his uh in fact I ran into uh uh the ledge as he's known uh, many many years later over here because he's living in San Jose area and um he said, uh, you know, I said, oh, yeah, we played with this thing. with the Bow Ray. Oh, yeah, Bow Ray. I remember him. You know, like, you know, so it was, yeah, yeah, it was uh, yes. that's the kind of stuff we were really, really into in terms of, like, uh, you know, uh, we, we didn't want to be like that, but we wanted to share that same kind of energy. And, and like I say, anarchic is about the best way to explain it because, it's you know, it's not, we weren't trained musicians or that good or anything, so we were kind of, we were trying to bite off more than we could chew, really, in some ways, and then it led to an, an anarchic sort of a sound. Yes, but it was quite interesting because, 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 in a very simplistic way, you know, looking at that music world of 
I mean, there was the chart stuff, but there was like the punk and then post-punk and then that little period. And then there was indie, which was that sort of, for me, I put it down to 83 to 87, which is basically the years of the Smiths and then ecstasy and then you had to dance music. So then you had all these other things happening under the surface and obviously psychobilly was quite huge. And then you had people like Terry and Jerry who also had a kind of more of an um, uh, acoustic kind of vibe to that kind of um, style, didn't they? Which well, well, there was a lot of... Um, you see, Psychobilly was a thing, you know, that you know, we became a part of because... Not because we necessarily wanted to be, you know, uh, oh, we want to be in that scene. It was more like, you know, you, you're a band and you want to get gigs and you end up doing gigs and you and, and go down really well at these gigs. And, you know, we, were, we liked a lot of that. Um, but like I say, we were more in kinship with um, the milkshakes and the prisoners, and who were not into really. I mean, they were on the edge of that scene, maybe. Uh, I mean, of course, they were very. They had their own kind of, um, you know, uh, very tailored aesthetic sense, you know, which is more than more probably more uh, revivalist than we would want to be. But uh, but you know, obviously they were. They, they had yeah, they had their own niche and they it's like I see bands like the Milkshakes and Cramps and all those groups you know they have their style and they're smart because they stick to it you know they you know the, the progression isn't really in their vocabulary you know what I mean uh, it's uh, but that's why people love them you know because uh, you always know when you get a Cramps record it's going to sound like this and you know yes that sound and it's you know that's it. So when so it took because most bands they have a five year narrative don't they you know and from this period particular period you know there was like a couple of like a year eighteen months kind of getting together and rehearsing often sort of while being unemployed with a lot of bands not all of them from the early eighties but there was the job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes that gave people a certain grant. Oh, I remember it well. Uh, hey, we think about it. The, the Thatcher's government was one of the best, biggest sponsors of British music. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, Little did she uh, know, really. But um, yes, I mean, she was responsible for a lot of indie bands. And then, you know, like a John Peel play, a John Peel session, that first album. So what were your kind of early, kind of that, that kind of, not honeymoon period, but, you know, those kind of early months and years before you get the, the first album out? Well, we... Um Let's see, well, we like I said, we sort of got together in Crouch End, and we did a played some parties, uh, and uh, you know, we had friends that we, we kind of knew, you know, through you know, but mostly the, in the early days from the sort of rockin', what they called the rockin' scene, um, and did some uh, some shows, and you know, just sort of somehow kind of blustered our way through. Uh, I remember doing our first demo at uh, this. Um, Actually, it's a studio that we recorded at quite uh, quite a lot later on called Alaska. It was in uh, Waterloo, around the Luther Arches in uh, Water, near Waterloo Station. And I remember the the, the, the engineer just like uh, laughing like, oh, so, uh, you know, how, you know, how are you going to pay for this? So, oh, we made some money from gigs. Like, well, you made money from gigs? You know, well, but, um, I, and I remember being quite, you know, thinking, you know, that's, uh, you know, the, being self-sufficient was a really great thing. So yeah, we just we would just play around a lot, and you know, early on we had uh, people that kind of that liked us enough. I mean, I remember we went to we played in Paris for the first time uh, in you know probably only about a you know about six months after we formed. Um, and I remember that was a big fun. We were playing the Gibus Club, which is like the big thing there, and uh, and there was a bunch of uh, you know skinheads. French skinners outside waiting to beat us up because we were English. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, um, 
and then you know we um and then at the same time i remember we would go we'd always hang around the record shops like in north london in particular rock on in, in uh, camden town which is of course connected to ace uh, uh records ted carroll owned it um and uh, we took ted off the little demo that we made and he sort of laughed and said oh yeah, it's kind of psychotic rockabilly yeah, yeah, blah, blah. uh you know and he, but then he happened to see us play at Dingwalls. We used to also play with a group called the Cannibals, uh, Mike Spencer. He's a real, and that guy's a real character you should talk to at some point. Um, they, uh, and uh, Ted was at that, and he, and, uh, you know, he came up afterwards and said, you know, hey, let's make a record. You know, so um, we went to, uh, you know, made this little EP, and I remember, like, you know, Ted saying, yeah, it's going to be cheap and cheerful. Uh, but then we had a friend uh, or a fellow that was hanging around the scene, and he took some, was a really good photographer, took some nice pictures of us and took some great color photos of my mate Ski's, us and um, my mate Ski's bedroom. Uh, he, uh, he, like me, we were both on this path of like hoovering up every bit of music we could. And we were really, really into like sort of mid 60s psychedelic stuff. Um, and so he painted the entire of his bedroom ceiling with the cover of the first 34 Elevators album. I mean, we were all huge, huge elevators, and you know, all of that whole period, West Coast pop art, love, and you know, all this stuff is weird. That was probably the biggest influence ever on me, yeah. music. Anyway, uh, and so yeah, we showed Ted the color photos. He said, "Wow, well, I was going to think this was going to be cheap and cheerful, but uh, yeah, let's do it." So that became our first record, and, and I think it got some attention just because it was this weird. These guys were like, you know, kind of rockabilly look standing in front of a 34 elevators thing. Yeah. Yes. So that was in Ways that was sort of a statement for us of like, well, this is the kind of people we are. We're not going to be put in a, and we're not going, we're not a, we're not going to fit the tribal stereotype, you know, because um, uh, we were all, all of us, you know. I mean, Bow was a bit more of the good old solid rock and roll guy, but he liked he liked the '60s stuff too. Mark was really like me was really into it, and he loved you know we both you know loved the punk punk rock and everything like that. And and Keith, the original bass player, was you know had he was a big jazz head too so we, we we spread it all around as far as you know what we try to put into our music um, uh, or, and like I say we, but we weren't trying it was like hey here's a great song let's do it you know yes um, but you you, know, you, you obviously you and Bao got to be the you know you wrote the songs did that all come together relatively smoothly because it's you know it's uh, not uh, yeah um, sort of I mean I think uh, yeah, we all we all had a go but it just sort of I guess I guess it's because I was just a, I was sort of teaching myself how to play guitar at that time, and so you know, in the, and of course, the way you teach yourself, you know, is to play along with the records you like. And so I'd soon figured out I could do certain things, and sort of songs came out of that. But I was always writing as though, like you know, as though I I was in a band in like 1977 or something like that. You know, it was all, you know, I liked I liked the sort of protest angle of things. You know. Um, could never write a love song and certainly nothing, you know, I wouldn't even try to, you know, go down these sort you know, the sort of fruitier roots of, you know, talking, talking about, you know, ghouls and vampires and stuff. We were, you know, we liked the, uh, we liked having something to say in the songs. I mean, Bowles, uh, the song Bowles wrote Dinosaurs is absolutely genius because it's, that's just him, you know, punking along guitar, but the song is all about all the, the very narrow-minded people we knew in the rock and scene that, you know, they would complain about Teddy Boys being reactionary, but they were just as bad. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we had that sort of an impulse to create songs um, in that way. 
uh, and uh, we, you know, just kind of took off. But at the same time, we were always our ears are always open for for songs that we kind of you know batter, you know, batter into submission in yes. our own way. So and like you know, we would do uh, as well as doing obvious things like you know, you're gonna miss me or psychotic reaction. We do the you know, we do uh, everything from. Uh, you know, Reparation and Delron's, you know, Northern Soul thing to Gene Clark to, uh, we used to do uh, Joy Division, uh, They Walked in Line, um, uh, you know, X-Line fame, because there was a period when Wire suddenly became super hip in the mid-80s, and everyone was saying, yeah, I've been in a Wire for years, um, <laughs> and stuff. But Wire, I would say Wire, along with uh, Arthur Lee and Love, though, uh, as far as whatever pitiful attempts I've made at songwriting, those two elements are the two biggest influences on me. Uh, Arthur Lee especially because he was, the, you know, taught me you could put major seventh chords and, you know, these slightly more melodic, jazzy chords into, you know, straight-ahead rock and roll. Yes. Uh, I think one of my first ever John Peel shows that I listened to and recorded was the I Am The Fly by Wire, and I was a bit like, God, this is quite different. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, Wire, yeah, just uh, because, again, they were like, you know, it was a... Uh, they just had a very, it wasn't particularly fancy, but they had a, just a very identifiable, identifiable way of, um, of, of you know, presenting themselves. And, you know, the, our, our problem was we always tried to do, uh, you know, we, we, when we had a song, we'd try, you know, we'd have what we'd hear in our mind, and then actually translating it weren't always the same. But sometimes we, um, you know, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, but it was... Uh, um, yeah, you know, we it, we weren't into like standing still and just doing the same old thing, you know. Um, uh, and I think you know that's probably was a you know was good for us and you know in the short term, maybe not so good for us in the long term because you know people are we didn't have a you can't put up pick up a Stingray's record and say yeah that's everyone's going all of them are going to sound the same. They all sound reasonably different, which um, yes, you know, you know well, it's uh, I don't know. And did you and and after dinosaurs there was quite a few years before cryptic and coffee time which was on a different label did that yeah. was that was that quite a sort of existential period for you and the band <laughs> existential well actually we we made records in between i mean we actually made um two uh two of our better produced records in terms of like singles in between uh those two records uh, that would be uh, um, Don't Break Down, which is the last record we made for Big Beat Ace. And then uh, uh, a one-off we did uh, uh, for this guy, John Curd, who was a, um, one of the big promoters in England. Uh, who was, he was you know, booking the, you know, booked a tour of the Cramps, and we got a, the opening slot. And, but part of the deal was you know, we got the opening slot because we just made a record for him. Uh, uh, and so you know, it was kind of the promotional thing. Um, that's called June Rhyme, and that one has actually seems to go, you know, worn, worn a little better. Both of those records don't break down. June Rhyme are probably, you know, uh, dated better than some of our other stuff. Um, and then, you know, we, the problem with Critic Coffee Time is that is that we we sort of changed things around when we got to that record. Um, we we cut it right after we'd done this big long tour with the Cramps, thing, which was great. You know, we had a wonderful time, you know, playing these big venues all around England and everything. And, and yeah, I'm going going down. Because I think they because well. they just had they done a date with Elvis then, or was that that, that was the uh, uh, that was the album uh, that they were promoting. Yes, so, I remember John Peel played that so much that album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I was going to say about John Peel. John Peel 
I don't know if we had the wrong deodorant or something, but he didn't like us, never played us, never played a record by us. So. Uh, but then again, I don't think he played a, you know, there's some bands he glommed on to, or maybe it was his uh, his um, producer or whatever. John know. Walters, but, but yeah. Then, you know, there's, yeah, everybody and their brother are sending, uh, her, his or her brother is sending sending them his their stuff at that time. So, you know, he was pretty, he was pretty selected. He had his favorites, and, you know, that's, that's fine. Anyway, um... The, uh, but we changed the lineup. I was playing, I'd been playing drums up until that point uh, on stage, and then I decided, you know, I'd rather just uh, play guitar live. You know, I was starting to get, you know, not not really good, but a little bit better. And I just, you know, we were starting to expand a little bit musically, so it made more sense. But that was probably a mistake because, you know, we lost the anarchic side of it. You know, I mean, I think what it, what ended up happening is we we had a we, we had a record that was much more like uh, trying to reach to get to somewhere that we couldn't quite get to, you know, because we didn't have enough, you know, enough of whatever it is, you know, we want to, you know, and we were starting to have big, dim, uh, you know, differences of opinion musically too, um, you know, by that time, you know, uh, so, um, but it's funny, people like Cryptic, you know, I mean, I, it's actually, that album has actually been reissued. Uh, whereas uh, none, none, none of the rest of our stuff has, and as I read something once where somebody said it was the most depressing album they ever heard. <laughs> it's like you know, and it, it's like a soundtrack for suicide kind of a thing. Nice. Um, that's that's that's. Yeah. Did you feel when you were recording it? Because because eighty seven, you know, was, was was there a feeling that this was going to be your last kind of? Yeah. Oh yeah, there definitely was. Uh, uh, in fact, sort of in between, in the middle of the sessions, it's like yeah, we're going to knock it on the head kind of a thing it was yeah we started mostly in 86 it got finished at the beginning of 87 but uh, um you know and i think you know again it's one of those things where like you know gosh if i could go back i would change this that and the other um you know but uh, i've you know i, I think uh, um I, yeah I, I suppose i'm reasonably proud of it yes yeah. and did you manage uh, to keep a date or a list of all the dates gigs you played because uh, people I keep putting up I, I was just uh, many years ago Bal and I were like kicking around that you know just a fun like list of who, what, how many gigs we'd done and I what did uh, I just fished that out this morning just to kind of prompt myself in case I you know gave a date that was wrong and um, uh, no we and I'm, actually we did a, a, we, we actually played a lot in our last couple of years we uh, as well as you know doing the um Cramps tour. We played in Europe a lot, uh, especially in Holland and in Germany. Not quite uh, more in France in our sort of earlier part of our career, but we spent a lot of time in Germany. Um, and uh, and uh, and did you play at the famous ambulance station? Yes, we played there. Um, that's actually I had my drums ripped off <laughs> that that gig, uh, and. Uh, it's one of those funny things where, like, you know, uh, I mean, I've had equipment stolen a few times, both in this country, you know, too, but uh, that was, uh, I mean, why anybody would want to take my drums, because I had them, you know, I only played two of them, like, say, a snare drum and a, and a floor tom, and a, and a ride cymbal, too, and I painted them, you know, with this Mondrian motif, which I was really taken with at that time. I had a shirt, that I, you know, it was, in, that was back in those, the 80s days, you know, you paint your own shirts and stuff. Well, the creation guys were like that too um and uh and yeah so yeah they got ripped off and then uh, you know they showed up somewhere and i think you know some 
music store south of London and nobody, uh, you know, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah, we please take them away. We can't get rid of these things. <laughs> so yeah. can you remember, because there's kind of people have now, I think this is to do with lockdown, have kind of been putting up lots of posters and there's been a new book that's just come out called London, Lost Music Venues, which is just just published. But yes, the ambulance station, you were on the bill with TV personalities, Biff, Bang, right. Pow and the Stingrays. But is it art, it says. So, yeah, what was the venue like? It was a dump. It was like an old um, what's old ambulance station. It was literally it just a, like kind of a, a large warehousey room, uh, a lot of glass, as far as I remember, and there was an upstairs area too. I remember wandering up there. Um, I only played there once, but I remember going there a couple of times, and then one time... And this um, this is really a foggy memory. You just suddenly stirred up. But I remember one time somebody playing there. It might have been Jasmine Minks or somebody like that. But I remember getting on stage to some kind of a jam, doing Eight Miles High with like Al McGee and a few other people. But it was very horrible. I mean, it would you know, again. It was a. It was a. Um, there were a lot of places like that. Uh, there was a place. Uh, the, there was a guy that was a um, social. Secretary for some place down in like Deptford or something like that. You know, so you know he booked all these bands to go play down at uh, this place, which is miles, of, you know, right at the end of the of the train, you know, the the tube or whatever. You know, for those days, um, I remember seeing uh, um, early Primal Scream there, uh, who were great by the way, were fantastic. Um, that you know, the, the you know, very different to you know what they became. Um, there was a lot, you know, there was a lot of bands I really enjoyed back then. Of that nature, you know, mostly around the sort of creation yes. type thing, you know, and some of them were really good live, didn't make such great records. Uh, there were some bands that were like really, you know, send you to sleep, you know, that were like a big deal at that time. I mean, I remember, I remember going to see, uh, uh, was it REM, I think, one of their early gigs in London, and um, this was a Lyceum, and this is a band called The Lucy Show that was playing. Oh, and yes. It was a great. There was a great review that was totally summed up right. So like watching them was like watching a bottle of tomato ketchup drip very, very slowly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. But, you know, sometimes, I mean, I was very friendly with, um, you know, just because I'd run into them and uh, through the sort of hanging out with Joe Foster and, and the creation guys, uh, I was very, ended up being very friendly with the go-betweens and some of the other Aussies that were sort of relocated. Yeah. Um, to uh, London. And like I said, I, Actually, ended up playing on uh, just sitting in for some a uh, couple of gigs. They they didn't call themselves the go-betweens. They called themselves the 16th century. Um, but it was at this place called the um, it was in Chalk Farm uh, Room at the Top, I think. Or okay, yes. Yeah, it was a, that was a great place. Stingrays. We did me and Bal did a very strange gig there. Um, probably ill-advised. Now that I think about it, uh, well, because Mark was I remember he was on holiday, so he couldn't do it. So we tr- this one did an acoustic thing, didn't work very well. But that was a good place, uh, you know, and we were, uh, that was a place seen that uh, um, I lived at that time. You know, I grew up in Crouchem, but in, from about 1984 till uh, I left England, uh, I lived in Kentish Town. And um, so, uh, you know, I used to, uh, and right just around the corner uh, from where I lived was a squat where all of my bloody Valentine lived. Um, and so I'd hang out with them quite a bit, and they were good, really good in their early days too. I mean, yes. I, I've always liked what they've done, but they they were a different kind of band in those days. And they they played with us a few times. They, there was a great gig we did at a place called the India Centre, which is in Covent Garden. Uh, I remember that it was us and um, uh, a group of Purple Things 
and uh, and then and there's uh, really and I remember I can remember at that time I was playing guitar uh, and some guy saying to me, "Oh, you used to play drums, man. You're so manic, you know." And, like, <laughs> and it, there was a little bit of a you know when we when we expanded the lineup, you know, there's a few people who were disgruntled, you know, because uh, it wasn't you know. It wasn't crazy. They couldn't do chicken dance to it or resort, you know, all that stuff. You, you sold know. out. Because just because cause the Australian bands and also the guy from the Chills from New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, well, the, I love the Chills, yeah, the Chills and the um, the Clean. And, and the house that I lived in, in Kentish Town, uh, one, of, one of the housemates was a, a, a fellow from... Uh, uh, from New Zealand, and so we'd have, uh, and then there was a, another guy I haven't seen for a long time, James Murray, very nice guy, uh, but he was part of like, you know, they were part of the Flying Nun, before they came to England, they were like involved, you know, the Exploding Budgies and some of these other, so they knew the Chills and the Clean and the Verlaines and all those groups, so they would always be talking about those guys and playing them, and um, I really liked a lot of that stuff uh, too. Yes. Um, well, I was always just amazed that they, because I don't think many people would have done it the other way around, but they all sort of relocate and lived in squats in London, which was, I don't know, seemed like quite a thing, you know, um, to a commitment, I suppose that's the word, isn't it? Commitment. Yeah, they, all those guys, I remember going to see the clean at like the Greyhound in Croydon and a place, like the entire Kiwi population of London was there. It was like you couldn't move. Uh, but it was great. I was, loved those bands. I loved Australian bands. Um, like I said, you know, we used to love just yakking with the, with the Robert and Lindy and everyone from. Um, yes. From the, 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 the go between the bad Australian music because I was, I was an omnivore. I was hoovering up every bit of music I could, and I really got into like okay, I've done all the British and American sixties classics and all that stuff. Like, you know, I, yeah, blah blah. I've got all the, the, the you know the bootleg compilations, the garage stuff, garage stuff, you know, whatever, blah blah, and psychedelic things. Yeah, you know, and I started really getting into you know the Australian variety of that kind of thing, you know, you know from the Easy Beats on down and all that kind of stuff. So, and they you know they'd be like totally non-plus. This bloke knows all about you know blah blah blah, uh, and they turned me on to some things. There's this group called the Moodists. Uh, oh yes, um, Dave Graney, um, you know the character who walk around with a cane and a hat and stuff. Mm-hmm. He told me about this a group called the Loved Ones. Uh, you know, one of the sounds, you know one of my favorite Australian sixties groups. That, it was a very, really, you know, it was a, you know, if you were just a, they responded to that sort of enthusiasm. You know, a lot of, a lot of people get circumspect. You know, um, uh, when you, you know, it, that's one thing I've noticed in England. It's always like, you know, if you're a little bit too uh, over the top or intense. I mean, I don't think I, I was personally over the top. I'm kind of a shy type, but you know, I had a lot of enthusiasm for, for things that most people would be like, you know, like. You know about this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. And, um, yeah, and no. so it was. It was a lot of a. Uh, you know, it was. Uh, now, the more I think about it, it was a great time. Like I said, I was living. I went. I went to university in London during the whole. I mean, I was doing. We were stingrays. We were recording the Don't Breakdown single like three, three weeks before my finals. I remember that because I was like reading Sir Gawain and the Green Knight like in the control room of the studio, uh, revising. Um, <laughs> And then uh, uh, the uh, you know I just worked on worked on Camden Market flogging records uh, for the rest of the time, but it was you know it was really a lot of fun and some uh, funny like so I played with the you know I, you know hung out with the with the um, 
the go-betweens and those guys. We did the Stingrays. I mean, we did a gig. I didn't know them that well, but we did a gig with the Triffids too. I remember that. God, Born Sandy Devotional was a great album. Fantastic album, yeah. Uh, and they were they were good, but they some of those bands were were not that. Uh, you know, I like they were good records, not so good live. You know, um, whereas the band, some bands are really good live, but the records are sort of like disappointing. I think that's a, that's a truism in in pop music anyway it's not um, you know not necessarily just applicable to that time or that era it's applicable to any era uh, but uh, it's very rare that you get a group that's as good live as they are as their records and vice versa you know um, uh, but uh, they, they, all that I really enjoyed I mean I went to so many gigs at that time that uh, that uh, that's funny and I was just reminded the other day too that for a short while I just played drums and this is when I was sort of kind of, when I started, uh, started playing guitar with the singers. Occasionally, I'd play drums for other people. I wasn't very good, but you know, because I'd taught myself to play drums standing up, and here I was sitting as a kit with some people. But I played um, with um, a uh, an American, a couple of American guys. Um, they had a group called uh, I can't remember the names. I must. I know I have the record somewhere. It's, uh, the group is called Crash. Uh, they made um, they made a couple of singles or whatever, uh, but the main thing about that is when I was playing with them, uh, one of the guys in the band was this guy Kurt, who later had this group uh, Ultra Vivid scene. Oh yes. Um, later on, um, uh, it's funny how some of those people end up. I mean, the, there was this uh, the that group Lush. The, the what's the name? Mickey. Uh, yeah, who I actually saw that event I mentioned about the, for Dan Tracy. Uh, um, the, she uh, she was that that I didn't even recognize her at first. I was like, oh yeah, you know, I remember. She was a huge milkshakes groupie. She loved milkshakes. Yes. Um, but yes. They, some, some of these people ended up in very interesting places. Uh, I had a um, my a girlfriend at that time who actually ended up moving to America with her. I played with her brother in a group called the Jackals. Jackals are fresh kids, um, and we did a, a few gigs. Actually, played out. In, I remember going out to um, uh, Bristol and playing a place called the uh, Paradise. I think Paradise Club, something like that. But it was a guy was put together by the gig was put together by this guy had a group called the Flatmates. Oh yes, made, from uh, Bristol. Yeah, yeah, and he called himself Rocker or something like that. And he was like <laughs> he was just a communal garden guy. But you know, <laughs> it was. Uh, I remember that was fun. But that that group. Um, uh, I don't know what happened to the singer or the guitarist, but the bass player. Who's uh, um, my girlfriend's brother? He's subsequently he has that uh, that group uh, Circulus, mm. you know, which is the um, kind of a you know it's very much him you know like kind of weird hippy dippy uh, English kind of uh, whatever that's right up his alley. He was really into like uh, uh, early music and you know playing the lute. In fact, he he lived over here for a while, and the band that I was playing with. The band I joined when I moved here, the Sneeches, um, he he played with us. <laughs> photos I saw the other day of him like playing a lute with us, you know, an amplified lute. Well, and we're screwing <laughs> around, it's pretty funny. Wow, that uh, sounds something like Steam would have done, actually. Uh, yeah, he's a uh, yeah, Mike uh, Mike Tyak, his name was. Uh, um, yeah, I haven't seen him for you know, decades, so no idea what he's up to now. Yeah, sure but your CV. Uh, so when when the the Stingrays, there's a bit. Weird, because there's another band called the Stingrays, isn't there, as well? There were several. There was a group, um, 
big difference with us, David, though, is there's a hyphen. Yes, right? uh, uh, There was a group called um, the Stingrays that were like sort of a uh, punkish 77 era. Yes. And then there was a group that was uh, actually sort of rockabilly-ish that were, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that they were something to do with Paul Weller's, when Paul, Paul Weller had a label for a while. Yeah. Bond records or something. I think that. Anyway, nothing that you know. We I remember when we started. We say we're not those guys. You know. <laughs> so when when um, when the Stingrays finished, what happened to you? I mean, what, how come you fin- ended up in America? Well, um, let's see. Well, the Stingrays. We um, just before we knocked it on the head, we, um, you know, which was like summer of 1987. I just come over here for a visit. And, you know, I'm in, I go off the planes, like, this is where I want to live. Um, and so um, I kind of had that in my mind from, uh, from that point on. So after, after the, the um, after Singerage split, uh, I remember there was a six-month period where there wasn't much going on. It's probably one of the few times uh, I haven't been playing music in one form or another since I was, like, 18. Anyway, uh, uh, that's when myself and Mark... Uh, Hosking, guitarist, and then Joe Whitney, who played drums in the Stingrays, like in our last year or whatever. Um, we decided to put a band together with with Joe's uh, girlfriend at the time. She and that became this group, the Charity Case. Um, and uh, you know, I've been stockpiling a bunch of songs, and so we uh, we recorded, uh, did some recording, and put out a single. Um, uh, which actually got like single of the week in some long forgotten rag, whatever. Not that, that means anything. Uh, and you know, it was it, we did some gigs and it was uh, uh, it was good. But I'd already kind of made my mind up I was going to move over here. And like I said, my my girlfriend she kind of pushed me into doing that because um, she wanted to come over here too. So um, I ended up departing in like it was October 1988 is when I moved. So. Mm. Uh, but the funny thing was I was friendly. With, I'd met the guys in the Sneetches before I, well, the first time I came over here, and they made a record in the interim, uh, an album, and I remember I dropped it off with Alan McGee um, just before I left. And then I would happen to be at the, staying at the house, the apartment of my friend in San Francisco, who was sort of quasi-manager, the manager of the Sneetches. And the phone rings early one morning, and it's me, Alan McGee, so like it gets handed to me and says, I want to put this out. So, so the Sneetches are actually on creation. You know, the, uh, it wasn't a record I played on, but, uh, but it was, uh, uh, yeah, that was kind of a cool little connection there. So was it, was it then the case that you, you worked for Ace Records, or did you sort of try and just get the music band thing together? I just, I just wonder well, how well, you... Well, uh, when I... When I first moved here, I did a whole bunch of jobs like uh, you know, installing floors, painting houses, screen print T-shirts, anything I could. Uh, and then I fell in with a, um, a couple that had a mail-order record business, uh, and I did that for pretty much ten, the first 10 years I lived here. You know, it was mail-order at first, and then uh, they opened a store, and I worked there. Uh, and all through that period, I kind of... I'd always stayed in touch with the guys at Ace because, you know, I was always used to hang out with them the offices and you know you know they they knew i was really into it and then i started when i was here i also being a huge fan of sort of san francisco music scene of back in the day you know i started digging up stuff about chocolate wash band and great society and all these things and put a little magazine together called cream puff war 
And that, you know, Roger Armstrong, who from AIDS, who used to come over here a lot to the Bay Area because uh, the Fantasy Records owned Stacks, and he was working on all the Stacks back catalogs. So I'd go over and see him while he's, you know, screwing around with unreleased Otis Redding tapes and whatever. And, and you know, he saw a magazine and said, well, you know, you're really into this stuff. Why don't you put some things together, this, this music, if you're talking to the musicians or the people? So that kind of started snowballed the sort of doing work for Ace, uh, which is, um, uh, you know, at first I did a series of, you know, for, you know, California 60s things, and then just, you know, uh, invested in, you know, taught myself how to transfer old master tapes and, and all that sort of thing, and became sort of like an Alan Lomax type guy. I just throw the tape machine in the back of the car and drive to the Southwest or the Pacific Northwest or all the way to Nashville or yes. somewhere and sit in people's offices or bed, you know, living rooms or warehouses and copy tapes on uh, on behalf of Ace. And uh, it's really been a, uh, it's that wonderful experience because you really get to know not just American history, but America too. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a much more complicated place than <laughs> people. Because I, obviously being British, I had those all those fantasies of like, wow, here I am in the... Blah blah, and I remember the first time the Sneetches did a cross-country tour. Would have been 19. It was right after the earthquake uh, that was in 1989. So, and we were, you know, we're driving across the country, and I'm just, wow, we're here coming to Cleveland. This is where the raspberries are from, or the choir. We're going to Memphis. This is where Big Star from, and they're, and they're like crying, like oh, we can't get a latte. <laughs> you know, this is before Starbucks had like you know taken over the country. Yes. Uh, you know, they, what is, what the is one it? thing I will say uh, is that I'd love, always love playing with all those guys, everyone. But the Stingrays is definitely the the uh, the best live band I've ever been in. I mean, in terms of like you know, we as, as like I say, as crazy or loose or falling, toppling over type thing as we might have been. You know, there was you know people. A lot of people still tell me how, how exciting it was, and it felt exciting to do it. You know. People say, "What the hell are you thinking of when you're battering away and doing that stuff?" And you know, it's the same question I well, I mean, I remember I interviewed the Jerry Rosley, the singer of the Sonics, um, and you know, I said, "What the hell were you thinking of when you're screaming psycho and all that kind of stuff?" <laughs> and he, he said, "Well, I'm just trying to be like Little Richard, you know, whatever." And uh, that's the same way we felt. We just like, you know, it's like this is the, that's that energy we hear in those records. We want to put that same energy out you know it's going to come out through our filters it's not going to be the same thing yes uh, it may be better it may be worse or whatever but it's uh you, you it's i can't we couldn't sit still and not play you know we can't sit, play that what we wanted to play and sit still we had to really communicate and put it out there and um i think it made us a little bit different a lot of a lot of the bands around them because some of those bands would be They'd be really good live, but they'd be good because they'd be focused and they'd be, you know, they'd have their shit together, so to speak. We were much more looser, um, uh, and uh, like I said, that, so the comment that Shane McGowan made, you know, about us being like the pistols, reminding him of the pistols, was, you, know, you know, at the time it was a big compliment, but now I realize it's a really big compliment because it's the same sort of a you don't know what's going to happen type thing. Um, yes, but it's interesting because. Uh, um, because I was always obsessed with Bowie and also Lemmy from Motorhead, and whenever they were in, asked about their early musical influence, they both said Little Richard. But also, whenever all the 
interviews I've done with bands, they have a you know five year narrative roughly, and often it's that second album cliche. But also the other thing is that if when they ever say, oh yeah, we toured America, and I know they're going to say. And then we came back and split up because we <laughs> it destroyed us. So America, yes, it's, I didn't realise how, how it kind of literally sucks people's life force out of them and, and reduces them to sort of nothing, really. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, you've got to be... The fact is, I mean, I, when I moved here, I remember I had a, quite a few different sets of people from all different areas. Of, you know, I knew them through different areas they weren't connected people but i knew, i have written a lot of people i knew came over here and go well yeah i see you managed to stay here and then, yeah we're gonna we're gonna come here too and a lot of them you know they had they were gone within six months you know, they just you have to you've got to have the passion and ambition to make it work uh, you know uh, and understand you know you are, if you understand or have enthusiasm for america and american culture you can understand you can see also see the deep flaws in it and of course there are you know, uh, right at this moment, we're seeing all the deep flaws. You know, but the um, it's still, uh, you know, a, f- a fascinating place to live. You know, but you know, but I love going, coming back to England too. And you know, it's always been, you know, uh, I have a tremendous fondness for, uh, especially the, the that that period that we've been talking about. You know. Yes. And there was, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, a lot of good a lot of good music being made you know a lot of crap too i'll be honest with you i mean and the, <laughs> and the, the, the tribalism kind of spoils it a bit because uh, um you know it was uh, and you know it was also it was the beginning of of rock music becoming less popular as it uh, you know losing the popularity they had had in the 60s and 70s yes. you know as you know, dance music started to get was a much more powerful force um and you know, and that's how it is now. I mean, it's uh, uh, you know, the sort of stuff we're talking about really is, uh, you know, it's uh, going the way of classical or jazz. You know, in yes. terms of like, you know, there's still a lot of appreciation for it, but it's not, it's not a major force. Uh, um, but it was, uh, well, I suppose what actually it was quite interesting. You mentioned tribalism because because I can remember where we grew up. Where I grew up. You couldn't like, you know, like status quo were the band. You know, you just didn't say anything about the quo without getting beaten up. And, you know, to mm-hmm. to even admit that you might have liked Mirror in the Bathroom by the beat was, you know, again, you know, you're asking to get punished, that's, that's really. Funny. By the way, I mean, the, 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 uh, the bass player, um, Johnny uh, Bridgewood, who's the bass player and singer, is probably the longest period um, from Don't Break Down on. He's from Norwich. And in fact, we met him. Uh, we first met him when we played. Uh, we played there, um, and uh, you know he, he actually sat in on a song. And then later on, he said he was moving to London. And we had we had a we had a period after Keith left where we had a bunch of different guys playing bass, uh, and he uh, you know he fit in perfectly. So yes, um, yeah. excellent. And then, of course, he, later on he went on. Uh, he played with um, you know Morrissey or whatever, and uh, um, you know did uh, did a bunch of stuff. Yeah, everybody everybody's doing their own thing. I mean. Um, but uh, I mean, I'm, and I still still see them whenever I can, um, you know. Certainly, and in fact, the charity case group. We've had a couple of little reunions when I've been over, um, back over. Uh, you know, just uh, you know, and it's just and it's funny. Just we just, I mean, we're playing the same sort of venues that we used to play to about the same amount of people. <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, which is, uh, but that's okay. I mean, I'm not. Uh, I see. I, as I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a, like I said, a groupie. I mean, as well as. 
you know, play the Sneetches and then, you know, play with a whole bunch of different people, all different kinds of music. Uh, I mean, rock and roll, but, uh, you know, I mean, Mushroom was like a, the sort of band that I wouldn't want to be in the audience for, but it's a lot of fun to play. <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, total just improvised, you know, prog, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, which, as I mentioned before, is not a kind of music I gravitate to at, at all. Uh, but it's a lot of fun to play. I mean, I was always just playing kind of kraut rock riffs and more repetitive, punky sort of things with that group. Uh, and then, uh, like I say, uh, I always loved. You see, I loved all those the very early uh, Paisley Underground things. Like, and I always thought Rain Parade was that first album was you know the best album. Yes. And uh, you know, and I've gotten to know uh, Matt over the years, and um, you know, played played with him a whole bunch. Like in the, when I first decided to. Um, start playing again, but you know, it's again. It's like I realized. I remember I saw the Rain Parade's first gig in London at Dingwalls, and, uh, and all of us we were all just so disappointed, you know, um, because not so much. It was just you know, it, it was uh, yeah, the lineup was a little different, but it was it didn't come across with what you'd hope. And then the Dream Syndicate were even worse. They were like heavy metal, you know. So, you know, this isn't what we heard on these records. That sounded records sound like Velvets. You know, this sounds like you know Black Sabbath. Or something. <laughs> um, uh. yeah, and I. I Unfortunately, I'm not. I'm one of those people. I just cannot go down the heavy metal road. I mean, I just, uh, heavy metal, hard rock stuff to me has always been anathema. Uh, and so, you know, this. Uh, so the funny thing is, you say rock and roll in this country. Um, if you say if you say it to me, I'm, I think Little Richard, Elvis, Chuck Berry. You say rock and roll to most Americans, they say Zap, Sabs, Kiss, blah blah. Right. That's you know that's what they call rock. You know, rock and roll here. Which is kind of a um, yes. Well, I know that yeah. um, again. Lemmy always came on and did. You know, we're Motorhead and we played rock and roll because I think he was channeling the spirit of Little Richard, wasn't he, in Elvis? Yeah. Well, he was. Uh, he was definitely a uh, uh, much more broad-minded, and uh, you know, uh, well, but he'd been through it all with the you know the Rocking Vickers and and you know all that stuff in the in the sixties. Um, so I think um, you kind of if you've got that sort of grounding, then you understand it, but. Uh, um, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's interesting the difference between British and American musicians and yes. working with them. So, so working, because you've got a new compo, haven't you? Strangers in a Strange Land. Yeah. Is this a is this kind of a um, a super group? <laughs> you know, it, who does it consist of? Well, it, well, uh, it's essentially myself and uh, uh, the, my good friend and partner Paul Kopf, who's a singer. Um, and although he does, he certainly contri- contributes to the songwriting. Um, Paul and I, I've known him for, oh gosh, at least you know, probably 15 years. And we kind of got to know each other because we played, he sang and I played bass with uh, Cyril Jordan, you know, from the Flaming Groovies in a group called uh, Magic Christian. Uh, and, you know, I put in a couple of years with that. Uh, um, but he continued with it after I left. Uh, but we've always had a good rapport. And then we played... Uh, we played together in another group called Powder, which was an old, uh, like an old, another old group that was around in the late 60s, although very obscure, but I'd reissued some of their stuff. They were very unusual, um, you know, guys on the peninsula that were total Anglophiles and, uh, um, you know, worshipped the Who and the Small Faces and the Move and all that kind of stuff. So it was that kind of music, which I loved to play. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's right there. So Paul and I were part of that, and that fell apart. We had a kind of a false start with Strangers, but now we're sort of in a, uh, you know, we mainly 
the great thing for me, and this is kind of coming around really full circle, is like, you know, some of the early, my earliest musical memories are of, of and thrilling to, uh, you know, records like You Really Got Me and uh, My Generation. And uh, now, Strangers, uh, the guy that's producing us is the same, is Shel Talmy, the same guy who produced those records. <laughs> um, yeah, which is uh, hugely meaningful. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, I, the reason why that's happening is because uh, as part of my work for Ace, I got to know Shell, um, and I put out a whole bunch of collections of uh, of his stuff, including some unreleased Bowie. You might be interested to know because he was one of the he produced Bowie in his pre-same days, um, and um, he just got very friendly with him. And you know, uh, he's a you know fascinating fellow, this American guy that gone to England and produced all this stuff and really kind of changed the course of British music. Um, and uh, got to know him, worked on a bunch of stuff. Uh, one of the groups he produced that um, I'm a really big fan of is The Creation. You know, yes. Everybody likes, you know. Uh, and so that was a thrill working on that stuff with him. But anyway, we, uh, one day he just said to me, you know, he's in his 80s, and, and, and he's you know, blind, visually impaired, but he's, you wouldn't know it to hang out with him. He's as lively as anybody. One day he just said to me, you know, I'm bored. You know any bands that want to be produced? So, yeah. So, um, you know, I sent him some songs, and, uh, you know, I'm thinking this is the guy that, you know, he told me that he sent the Easy Beats back three times before they came up with, you know, something good enough to record in, in Friday on My Mind. Uh, and, but he said, yeah, yeah, this is all right, let's do it. So we went in the studio, and it was actually myself and Paul and uh, a friend of ours, Jonathan Lay, who plays in a great group called uh, The Jigsaw Scene. Uh, and the drummer was another one of my heroes from uh, from being a kid growing up, Clem Burke uh, from Blondie. Blimey, uh, that's yeah. a super group, really. Yeah, fantastic group. Uh, so that was a, a thrill and a half just to be able to do that. I mean, yeah, I'm, I, you know, long ago gave up any ideas of ever being successful in music, but um, there's a lot of you know if you, if you can't have fun doing it, and certainly with the with people you've admired, then. Uh, yeah, why do it? Yes. Well, my God. You know, it's funny. I, people often remember, I used to be, you know, you always say stupid stuff when you're young. And, uh, you know, sometimes just to get a reaction. And so I used to tell people, I used to do a Pete Townsend thing. I'd say, yeah, I'm going to kill myself when I'm 25 because, you know, I don't want to be old, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so people are always reminding me about that. Every time I go out to England, oh, yeah, I thought you said you were going to kill, top yourself when you were 25. Blah, yes. blah. Uh, but, but I, like I say, I had no. I'm perfectly happy having done, you know, done all that stuff. And um, yeah, so it was a, there was some a, a really good time in, in London in the 80s. It could be really, really exciting. And it was, you know, when you're, when you're young and you're playing the kind of music you like and people are actually responding to it, you know, you might not be, you know. There used to be a lot of um, stuff about uh, the, the, the friends of mine were, were uh, friendly with the membranes. You remember those guys? Oh yeah, John uh, Robb. Rob, John Robb, and their big thing was like death to trad rock, and you know, you know anybody, you know, it's like if you play a twelve-bar chord sequence, you know, you're like a, <laughs> you know, old old fab. But I realized that that was a, that really was kind of a, um, you know, that was just a sort of a funny thing because I remember talking to John Robb a couple of times. Again, the Stingrays played, we played with the Membranes. <laughs> that was that night. It was called. The poster, I think I have it somewhere. It's like it says, a night of pure noise, and I'm sure that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> us, and, us and the membranes. Yes. But, um, uh, the, um, 
yeah, it, it was there was a lot. You know, everybody was there was a certain uptightness, but that's how the British are. You know, there's always like you know angst. Gonna, We've got a lot of angst in this country, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, and there was a lot of like you know what what you know again. It's like people used to say, "I see what you're trying to do." You know, whereas we never felt we were trying to do anything. There were, of course, there's always musicians that are trying to do something. Um, you know, the uh, we were frustrated. I think partly because we never had a really a um, the Stingrays never had a, uh, a, a you know a George Martin type guy you know uh, that could sort of help us get to where we wanted to go. Um, we sort of did it all ourselves, you know, or, or thought we knew how to do it. Or and and of course you know that it, it, you know it, it ends up as you just. You don't, you don't get, you're not satisfied with the results, you know. But of course, when you have somebody like that, they can also cause fractures in the groups too. You know, yes, too. that's but, true. You know, if you had, I always think of the, the guy that I always admired was um, uh, the guy that used to produce the Stranglers and did a few other people, Martin Russian. You know, he was a, that sort of. You just needed a guy as a really good producer who could really just tra- help translate your ideas in studios. I suppose um, Tony Visconti was a bit like that for Bowie, wasn't he? He used to always come back. Oh to... yeah, yeah. But he was a, Visconti was you know because he's a great arranger, a musician too. He knew you know knew how to make things. Yeah, you just need it's what I guess you call it a conduit. You know, somebody that uh, that can put in uh, you know be a, a referee, be a counsel, be um, you know and and, and, and you know make suggestions that are actually going to work as opposed to just you know trying to be an auteur and turning you into something you're not, you know. Um, mm. you know but I mean, it, it was, you remember this is also the era right when technology was starting to come in the studio. So um, I remember, you see, when we did the Crypt in Coffee Time, I I played drums on that. Uh, uh, and but, yeah, I was still kind of, I didn't quite have it down together to be a really good drummer, you know, with a regular kit. So uh, we ended up using like a Lindrum <laughs> for uh, uh, for some of the kick drum stuff, which now I regret like crazy. But it was a it was an easier way of like doing a complicated pattern than trying to like you know you know because this was before click tracks and all that kind of stuff you know. Yes. Um, uh, but then it, I, I remember going to other sessions. I remember going to a go-between session where it was all like sequence and everything like that, and it was I could see you know just wasn't. You know, certain members of the group just weren't happy. No. Well, I've did. i done an interview with Lindy, and she talks about the session with a click track and the fact the producer sort of said, like, this is is without Lindy, and this is with Lindy. If you want a hit, have the one without Lindy. And I think 30 years later, she's still dealing with that. That's a a very... uh, Whoever that producer was, uh, I think I I seem to recall her telling me about that... Um, that was uh, somebody that was uh, definitely, you know, n- did not have his, his uh, what's the word, you know, his, his bedside manner was not very good, you know, yes. because, you know, I mean, I've been in situations like that where a producer just like, you know, you know, you know makes you feel small like that in a, in, in a way that's just doesn't, is not constructive at all. Um, yes. Yeah. But it was that era where, when when things were starting to get streamlined like that, you know, and and the the beat, for want of a better word, was becoming more and more computerized and sequenced and triggered, 
and uh, there are now, of course, is a hundred percent that way. Yeah, um, but there was a know, film. Yeah. There was a film that came out last year or the year before on the wedding present, doing the album George Michael, George George Best, and. Um, sure. Yes, that, that, <laughs> they probably threw that idea out. So they went for George Best, better picture, better sleeve. And um, there's a whole thing with the drummer and the producer and the click track. And they and and it's really and if you ever see the film, it's really you know I love rock you know pop documentaries, so it's always good fun. But they they sort of have the producer who gets asked to leave, and then there's this thing that flashes up on the screen saying, I don't know, it's all I don't know. They they make it look really like odd because it's like, by the way, this is all being dealt with and everyone's happy with the, and then it goes on with the rest of the film. But there's this little God. I wish I could remember exactly what it is that flashes up. Um, but if you ever see the film, and there's a big thing with the with the drummer who obviously still suffers from from this problem with the working with the producer and the click track and getting the sound. And I'm just thinking, I was an indie kid. I didn't really care about the, you know, that precision. It was not about precision, right, but right. obviously... Oh, no, well, that's true. But the, um, it happened uh, a lot. Of, there was a period where, I mean, I heard about some of them. I mean, the go-betweens are just one example, but there were other groups like, um, you know, I'm, I'm guessing Primal Scream. I seem to remember some story about Primal Scream where they bring in other musicians, first off, session guys to play things because whoever it was couldn't play or uh you know there there would be this thing where it would just be everything would get sequenced and triggered and um it was that start of like you know the um you know you because the whole the 86 thing was you know kind of like like it was for us you know it was our enthusiasms and wanting to play and being a band and da, da, da. uh and you know and some you know in some bands cases you know the, the amateurishness, so to speak, would be celebrated. Uh, but then, when you start moving up the ranks, you know, then uh, then you know uh, the and you get a, a deal or somebody's da da da. Then all of a sudden, that stuff comes back to bite you, and um, and you lose the charm of uh, some of those groups. You know, once they once they go streamlined. Yes. But it's interesting because there's two bands, I, you know, who did the first albums on sort of probably independent labels. Both, they both signed on this in this occasion to Virgin Records, and I think that was just like they both just went, yeah, we we're just going to split up. We don't want to do this anymore because they keep telling us what to do, and actually that's not kind of why we wanted to do it. So, um, and that that was the end. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of weird. There was one called the Railway Station, uh, the Railway Children. Yeah, I remember and, them. Yeah. And the, and they wanted to put them on support and take that. And he said, we didn't really want to be. We wanted to be West Coast American rock, not support right, and take yeah. that. And the other and the other yeah. one was like they had a producer and you know the the red yeah. guitars and they saw like no, you know it's like they just sat down and said um, this isn't really working and we're not really enjoying it. So that's the end of the band. So that was it. So there you go. Well, there was a um, yeah, there was definitely uh, a a. a uh, it was. It, I think it, it was sort of it crested around '85, '86. That sort of attitude, because like I say, the technology was coming in and people could start sampling stuff and all that kind of thing. But then it went. Thankfully, it kind of went went away from that by the end of the '80s, because you had you know guys like uh, what's his name Albini, you know. Yes, Steve Albini. Yes. You know those records which were all about the the open mic live thing, you know, uh, and it started going back to like real. Real drums and um, yes, you know, uh, and the group the group that I always admired uh, for kind of sticking to their guns was was the Valentines because they you know when they got you know they always produced their own records and they were 
really important. I mean, I remember Kevin Shields saying, yeah, we've got to keep the vocals down. You know, like, so you can just barely hear them. That's our sound. Uh, and then, you know, and then they, when they got the, after Loveless, you know, I think a lot of the money they made, he just invested in having a, uh, creating a studio that would be kind of like a porter studio, like a massive, like a, a studio, but it'd be so simple to use, like a porter studio. You could you could do radical kind of EQ equalization things and stuff that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do, you know, with a with a, a standard studio. Uh, and of course, the, you know, getting it together to make the new record, you know, <laughs> another thing. You know, uh, took them a long time. Yes. On Roses too. I mean, Sun Roses again. They were very lucky. They had John Leckie handling them. He's a fantastic engineer producer. You know, um, when you've got a guy like that behind the boards for you, then you can really you can relax. You know, my my favorite. I mean, I haven't really gotten too excited about many um, modern pop records for a long time, but uh, I did think there was a period in the '90s when there was a, it was it kind of started to get exciting again. You know, the whole you know Britpop thing. Um, and still a record I listen to all the time, even though it is super sequenced, but it's so well engineered. It's a different class, you know, by Pulp. Oh yes. Uh, uh, and you know, I love I loved a lot of those records uh, when they those came out. Um, and but now I, you know, so much stuff I've heard. You know, I can see that as I was saying, you know, the pop music and rock music is sort of you know, it's just seeming to sort of ebb away as far as the excitement is concerned. And I can see absolutely, obviously. Younger generations are turning to, you know, uh, to hip hop and EDM and all the other variant variants and tributaries of those forms, um, because that's more exciting to them. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, when when Little Richard died, you know, there was a funny funny comment over here. You know, there was some footage of, uh, you know, young people jumping up and down to his music back in the 50s and 60s, and uh, and you know, friend someone I know's young. Teenage daughter said, "Why are there all these young people in the audience?" And saying, "Well, it's, yeah, it's rock and roll, you know, but, but rock and roll's for old people." <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a strange moment, isn't it? Blimey! I know. I never thought we'd hear it, but the, you know, it's uh, you know the. Um, I mean, I, I'd be curious to know. Uh, I mean, in, with Strangers in Strangeland, uh, for a while we had a younger, uh, a, young, a guy who's like 24, who was playing with us, you know, uh, just just for gigs. And I remember he'd listened to, you know, some of the stuff we'd done. He said, wow, that sounds really 80s. <laughs> uh, which, which I actually took as a compliment. Yes. Uh, I still, you know, when I write now, uh, I mean, I'm not much better than I was back in the 80s when I was writing songs. So I still kind of think with that mindset, which is probably a bit more angular than your average sort of Sunday musicians around here. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I still, the lessons I kind of learned Back then, I still have that. Still had that. I mean, to me, you know, love and wire and 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 you know the elevators and all that kind of stuff is still you know that's all the Walker Brothers or you know all that stuff is things that I aspire to you know in those sorts of uh, you know that those sort of, in terms of like writing you know yes so and, and look that was a, all of those groups were obviously a big part of the eighty six thing you know I mean. The, I used to have long talks with like Bobby Gillespie about love and all that kind of stuff, you know, the birds. Yes, I know. Well, I suppose, yeah, the Smiths definitely hear Johnny Mott. Bobby had one of the best, I mean, I, I, I can't remember where he said it, probably in some magazine, but it, it's a line that I always like to throw back at people. It's like people, like, if, you know, if you're wearing a pair of Beatle boots or whatever, like people say, oh, yeah, oh, you're just wearing that, you know, because you want to be like the Beatles. Like, no, I don't want to be like the Beatles. 
I'm wearing it for the same reason the Beatles wore it. It looks cool, you know? Yeah. Uh, it might be out of fashion, but it will never go out of style. <laughs> and what would you, just lastly, what would you say to a, or what would you have liked to have said to your 18-year-old self starting out if there was something that you could have just told, or, you know, just said, just whispered to them, you know, just a, a kind um, of... Take singing lessons, because uh, <laughs> don't spend so much money on records. Throw some of the singing. What my biggest frustration in my life has been the fact I can't sing, so it's I can have plenty of ideas, but I can't put them across, you know, uh, in that point of view. And I've noticed that, that having, especially as a songwriter, if you can't sing, it's a real handicap, um, you know. Uh, and uh, you know, so I, I would have done that. I would have, you know, I would have, uh, uh, you know, I would have also told my eighteen, don't say stupid stuff like you're going to kill yourself when you're twenty-five, because you know that's just <laughs> people are just going to say, well, hey, they're going to say it's stupid when they hear it. They're definitely going to think it's stupid when they. Bring it back, bring it back up. Many years later, yeah. You know? you know, uh, uh, but at the same time, I, I wouldn't, have, you know, the, the, the certainly in the same ways, that was a it's a wonderful way to spend my early twenties, late teens, early twenties, and, um, and all those guys are still friends with them, and um, you know, they, uh, you know, we all recognize that that was a, you know, uh, it, it was a fairly, you know, in its own way, kind of a special thing. First. You know, it might not be a hugely influential, you know, act or this or that or blah blah. We're not being asked to do reunions or anything like that, but uh, um, it's still, you know, um, you know, still really was. Uh, I'm glad we did it. And that was me in conversation with Alec Palai from the Stingrays. Um, yes, that's it. Thank you for listening. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C86 Show. And um, yes, keep it positive. Otherwise, don't bother. Look, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>